All righty. Well, First Chronicles 28. Um, why don't you turn there? And I'm just so thankful, church. Um, I know that, you know, he gets to have the fun job of coming up here and giving gifts, but uh, I know, and I really mean this, Pastor Tyler couldn't do stuff like this if he didn't know you were a generous church. And it really means a lot to us. I'm trying not to, I'm not an emotional person typically, but when it comes, it comes too much. And so uh, I get a little too emotional. And so I, uh, I'm trying to just stay focused on the message, all right? First Chronicles 28, I've taught the message tonight, uh, your greatest investment. And it's not talking about me, although and, and you'll get to the end of the message, you'll kind of figure out that it kind of means me and others. I want to talk about one of the greatest investments in history. In 1994, there's this guy with a crazy business plan. And he met with 60 family members, friends, and potential investors. And his goal wasn't that high. He said, I want to get these people to invest about $50,000 each. His goal was to raise a million dollars. And his investment pitch wasn't much of a sales pitch. In fact, he told everyone, including his own parents, that there was a 70% chance they would never see their money again. How's that for an investment pitch, right? Hey, can I have $50,000? By the way, only a 30% chance you get that $50,000 back. Sounds like kids, right? And while 40 of his investors didn't believe in him, Jeff Bezos' parents did. And they gave Jeff Bezos not 50000 they gave him 250000 Now, fortunately for them, Amazon's worth a little bit of money now. Big warehouses and such like that. In fact, Amazon's the highest yielding stock investment of all time. Get this, it has grown since I believe it's IPO over 200,000%. That's a lot of percents. And there are $250,000 of investment if they've kept all their stock. That would mean that Jackie and Mike Bezos are worth $30 billion. Now, you've probably never heard of Jackie and Mike Bezos, but because of their investment in Jeff Bezos, they are worth more than the co-founder of Microsoft and the very famous Elon Musk. And we look at Amazon, which is one of the most valuable companies in the world, and we think of Jeff Bezos a lot, right? I mean, he ends up in a sermon illustration, I feel like, every couple months. We think about guys like that, but behind, every, behind Jeff Bezos were 20 people that none of us know about that gave what probably for some of them was a portion of their life savings, and it was that initial investment in Amazon that over a long period of time produced one of the most valuable companies in history. And those 20 people who at that time took a risk that there was 70% chance they would never see their money again can now look back and they can say, can't they? That was the best investment they made in their whole life. And isn't it true that behind, really behind every great company are a lot of unknown investors? 
Behind every great athlete are a lot of unknown coaches. Behind every great mind is a lot of great teachers. And behind every great business person is a lot of great mentors. And here's why, here's what I believe tonight. That every monumental achievement stands on the shoulders of a sacrificial investment. Every great thing that has been achieved in mankind's history has behind the scenes a sacrificial investment, not just made by the face of that achievement, not just made by the Jeff Bezos of the world, but some people who are behind the scenes, who are unknown, who sacrificed and invested in somebody else. But I think you'd agree with me, right, church, that there are investments even more valuable than Amazon stock. I said there are investments far more valuable than Amazon stock, aren't there? Isn't this what Jesus said? And I believe in Matthew chapter number six, he said this, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. In our passage tonight, we have a story of a great investment. An investment that wasn't just stock in a secular company, but an investment in something eternal and in something that brought God glory. In 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, we have the story, the behind the scenes of how Israel raised the wealth to build Solomon's temple. Now, if you understand Solomon's temple, you understand to the ancient world, it would have been just as impressive as Amazon, probably more so. It wasn't a very large building. It certainly wouldn't compare to an Amazon uh, shipping warehouse, but to Israel, it was big. They were used to worshiping in a tabernacle, a tabernacle, and it was twice as big as that. But listen to these facts about the temple. It took 30,000 Israelites, 100 50,000 Canaanites, and a lot of other people on top of that, the Bible doesn't even number to construct it. The amount of gold, silver, and precious metals is mind-blowing. They, they put in, a lot of people estimate, 8 million pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. 76 million pounds of silver. And I think all of us in 2021 can appreciate with the skyrocketing prices of lumber that Solomon bought so much lumber for the temple that his payment for the lumber was not in dollars, but in 20 cities. He gave the guy, the king of Hiram, 20 cities to pay for the lumber. And in fact, if you read the Bible, the guy was disappointed. He thought it wasn't enough payment for his lumber. I think he understood what lumber would be worth someday. And then on top of that, it isn't even really numbered very accurately in the Bible, but a lot of bronze precious jewels. I mean, stuff that you would have to pay your life savings to buy one of them. And it was everywhere in the temple. If you just Google uh, 3D images of Solomon's temple, you understand that it, it's just mind-blowing how much gold and silver and precious stones that are in there. I, I want you to understand this. If you were to try and calculate maybe what the modern day value of Solomon's temple would be, uh, a lot of people estimate, and this is a minimum estimation, it could be higher that Solomon's temple was worth $150 billion, with a B, billion. To put in perspective, 
the Freedom Tower in New York City that we constructed in, uh, in honor of 9-11 and, and remembering those who lost their lives only cost $4 billion. If you wanted to find something that you could buy that was somewhere in the ballpark of $150 billion, you would have to buy the International Space Station the orbits planet Earth. That's a lot of money, folks. And that is the type of thing they built in the nation of Israel way back in King David's day. In our text tonight, here's what we have. We have a king whose unfulfilled dream led to a heavenly investment. We have a nation that got behind his vision and we find a payoff that was way more impressive than a modern day Amazon. And here's what I believe tonight, and this will be on the screen, that behind every Solomon-sized achievement was a David-sized investment. And David begins to tell his story of why he did what he did in verses 1 through 10 of chapter number 28. Why don't we look at some of these uh, with us together. Look at verse number 2. David begins to tell the story of what was in his heart. It says in verse number 2, Then David the king stood up upon his feet, and he said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me... Pay attention to this. I had in mine heart to build an house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God and had made ready for the building. So David says, I had this dream. I wanted to build a temple, but look at verse three. God said, you're not going to do what you're dreaming of. I have another plan. But God said unto me, thou shalt not build an house for my name because thou hast been a man of war and has shed blood. Howbeit, verse number four, the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. And then he begins to talk about how it was his lineage that would inherit uh, his throne. And verse number five, and of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons. Here's the key. He hath chosen, who's the next person there? He had chosen Solomon. Solomon, my son to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now look at verse six. And he said to me, Solomon, thy son, he shall build my house in my courts. For I've chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever. Now I want you to look at verse number eight. I find this really interesting. God's talking back to David again. He's not talking about Solomon. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the congregation of the Lord, in the audience of our God, keep and seek for all the commandments of the Lord your God, pay attention to this, that ye may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance for your children after you forever. Here's what the text is saying. David says, in my heart, I wanted to build a temple. I wanted to build that nice building that you just saw on the PowerPoint. That's what David's saying. But God looked at me and he said, you can't do it. It's not my will for you to do it because you've been a man of war. And so I've instead chosen Solomon, your son. Out of all the sons you have, I've chosen him. And he's going to do what I'm not going to allow you to do. But I do have a plan for you, David. He says, my plan for you is to inherit the rest of the land. Yes, you're a man of war. Yes, you're a man of bloodshed. But that's what I've called you to do. I've called you to clean up the mess that the men before you wouldn't clean up. But there is someone coming after you that is going to do something that I've told you you cannot do. I, I told you that it's the will, my will for someone else to do. And here's what I get out of verses 1 through 10. Here's the point that God is calling. Listen, church. God is calling the next generation to do things that you and I aren't called to accomplish. God is calling another generation to do things that you can't do or God doesn't want you to do. 
I love this. I think this is so beautifully modeled in the pastoral transition we watched happen officially a year ago. That, that we had a pastor who could have easily stayed here another couple years. I mean, no, none of you probably really saw that transition coming at that time. He could have easily wrote it out. The church was doing well. But here's what I think Brother Prater recognized, is that there are certain things that God wasn't calling him to do in this church, that God was calling someone else, it happened to be his son, to lead this church to do things that were, I would even say, different or greater, just like God called Solomon to do different things, that God was calling someone else to do it. And so selflessly he said, I'm not the one who's supposed to do this. God has willed it for someone else to lead our church for this season. Therefore, I'm stepping away and I'm leading this transition. But I've watched how uh, we all understand that even with our kids, don't we? I mean, what parent doesn't want their kids to have more and better and do more for God than they did. I look at some of you uh, younger grandparents in the auditorium, and man, I could just see it in your faces. You want, you want your grandkids to have more church than your kids had. You want your kids to do better as parents than even you did. You want your grandkids to grow up and not deal with the battles that you dealt with in your home that you want the next generation to do greater things for God, that you want your kids, your grandkids, to see more happen for God, to surrender more of their lives to God. I've watched how we, we see this in the next generation of our church, how there's young people in our auditorium all around that you as a church are investing in. Why? Because our church cannot continue going if we don't have another generation always coming up serving the Lord. Isn't that right, church? Yeah. That, that we have to understand that there's another generation coming up and, and newsflash, it's coming a lot faster than you think and all of us are a lot older than we think. And there's another generation coming up and if we don't get on board and we don't understand that God is calling them to accomplish things we can't or shouldn't accomplish, we're gonna get behind the eight ball real quick as a church. I've watched how not only has this happened in a pastoral transition, but I think in some ways in other ministries of our church, there's leadership transitions happening because there's a new generation that needs to take the reins that another generation has held for a lot of years. I know Pastor Tyler believes that. I said, there's a new generation that has to come up and be willing to serve as faithfully as a prior generation. Listen, it breeds problems in a church when a former generation refuses to let go and let another generation carry the baton. That you have to understand as a church, listen, that there's going to come a time that you need to step down just like our former pastor, just a little bit before, because there needs to be another generation that's going to lead. Another generation that's going to serve. Another generation that you can mentor. And I'm not calling on anybody to step down tonight, but you understand what I'm saying? That there's got to be a willingness in a church to understand that we can't do everything ourselves. There are some temples God hasn't called us to build. There are temples that God has called the next generation to build. There are ministries that God has called the next generation to build. And I think in a lot of ways that's the heart behind why I, got, I even get a staff position here. Because we had a pastor who understood that he can't go to Oro Valley, Arizona. He can't go to Scottsdale. But you don't have to talk to Brother Prater very long or Pastor Tyler to understand 
that though they pastor in rural America, they have a great burden for the other cities of our country. They have a great burden for it. But here's the truth, church. God hasn't called you or I to do everything. God is calling a new generation. God is calling other people to do things that you and I either can't do or shouldn't do. And so how do we respond to that? Well, some people, here's how they respond. They get a little bit jealous. Get a little bit jealous. Well, I need to hold on to this because I don't want them to have the the prestige and the honor that comes with that. There's a lot of pastors who refuse to pass off the baton because that's exactly what's in their heart. They get a little jealous. We selfishly hold on or never pass the baton or even some would go even so far to undermine the work of the next generation because the next generation, uh uh-oh, they think a little bit different than the prior generation. Yes, some of you understand. But what I love about this text is we see in David the perfect example. What do we do? Pay attention to this. What do we do when God calls someone to accomplish something you can't or shouldn't do for yourself? What do we do when God places a Solomon in our life who maybe in some ways is accomplishing our dream or the dream of another? You know what David did? It's dominated by a controlling verb in verses 11 through 21. I want you to look at verse number 11. Then David, what's the next word? Gave. He gave to Solomon, his son, the pattern of the porch. Now hold up. Before verse 11 happened, this guy did a lot of preparation. Any of you ever had to draw plans for a building? It's not a quick process. It's not a quick process, but here's David, because he cared so much about his, his son and more importantly, the work of God, he says, I'm going to invest myself into this. I can't build the temple. These hands can't build it, but I can invest in it. And so he says, I'm gonna give you all the blueprints. Check that off your list. And then verse number, I, look, I think it's verse number 14. Look at verse number 14, he gave of gold by weight for things of gold, for all instruments of all manner of service. Here's what David said. He says, I'm gonna take care of all your platform equipment. That's not exactly what it is, but that's kind of what he did, right? I'll buy your piano, you know, your gold piano, your gold guitar. That'd be pretty nice, right, Caden? Gold guitar. He says, I'm gonna give you enough gold to take care of all the instruments of the temple. I'm gonna give you all the silver you'll need for the instruments of the temple. I'm going to give you bronze and and I'm going to give you precious jewels. But what's amazing to me about what David did, look at chapter 29, verse number three, is David wasn't using the nation's wealth to give this to Solomon. Look at chapter 29 and verse number three. He says this, Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, I have of mine own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I've prepared for the holy house. So here's what David did. He made extraordinary sacrifices to equip Solomon to build the temple. What I love about this passage is David didn't just invest financially. He invested in Solomon spiritually. Look at verse number 20 of chapter 28. He calls Solomon out. He gives him an ordination charge. It says, and David said to his son, be strong and of good courage. 
and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. So here's David. He sees that God hasn't called him to build the temple, but he says, I'm not gonna let that discourage me. I'm not gonna let that give me an excuse to just sit back and ride out the rest of my kingship. I'm king for a reason, and the reason is so I can conquer the land of Israel and so I can prepare all the materials necessary for Solomon to build the temple. And so he gives extraordinary sacrifices to equip Solomon, but then he invests in Solomon spiritually to prepare him because don't you understand this church that the work of God takes money, but it also takes a willing heart that loves God to accomplish it. And you can have all the money you want in the world, but if you don't have a heart that loves God, you'll never get anything accomplished for God. And so here's what David said. I'm not just gonna invest financially, I'm gonna invest spiritually. And so behind Solomon and his accomplishments, behind Solomon and his fancy temple, behind Solomon and his world wonder is David and his sacrifices and David and his investments. You know what I'm thankful for, church? I'm thankful that there have been some Davids in my life who've invested, who sacrificed, to equip me to fulfill God's call for my life. I love that, that we've gotten to share this week with our family. Because I could talk about our pastors, but I'd be remiss if I don't talk about my mom and my dad and my in-laws who taken me in as if I was their own, as if I was their son, who've equipped me. But I'm so thankful that even as Shelby and I launch out of, out of our homes, that we came to Fellowship Baptist Church as a really young couple that didn't know hardly anything about the ministry. And I didn't just get one David, I got two. I had Pastor Prater who poured in my life. And he may not know how to eat a steak or he may like extra burnt pepperoni pizza. There's a lot of things about Pastor Prater I refuse to model in my life. A lot. Oh man, so many. But you know, I, I learned a lot from Pastor Prater. I know he's not here. I, I wish he was, but he's out, you know, preaching and investing in people and all that. But I, I watched, I watched, and here's what I love. In church, I think you would be surprised how rarely this is the case. But I watched and saw the product of a praying pastor. You realize most pastors that I've met don't pray for every single church member every single week? Our pastors do. I'm glad I learned from that. I saw someone who called, never called for others to sacrifice without sacrificing himself. And I think the one thing that stands out to me of, of Pastor Prater is that it always seemed like he had someone that he was working on to lead to Christ. I shouldn't even use the past tense because that's still the case, isn't it, Pastor Tyler? That I think we get a text every month or two. Hey, would you pray for this, this cop there? They've come to me and had this talk and we're working through some things. I'm hoping to share the gospel with them. And I'm thankful that not only did I have one David in my life, but I had another one. That God gave me another David. And, and Pastor Tyler, I would never call him a father figure, uh, uh, but I would call him a, a friend. 
And then I, I watched as in, in even just the last year how Pastor Tyler's led with boldness. How as a young pastor who I think all of us would agree has a lot of great ideas and, and has a lot of a heart for this ministry. I, I've watched how uh, he, he refused to lead with, with pride, but isn't afraid to listen to others. I'm thankful for a David that challenged my thinking, a David that made me a better man of God, a David who is willing to listen when I thought I had my own ideas. And there were a lot of ideas that weren't worth listening to, but he still did. He said I was a, his chief counselor. You know, there's sometimes it's all of a sudden like, I don't know, man. <laughs> my mind, I'm dying. There are a lot of times I'm like, hey, you got the pastor seat right now. I'll let you ride that one out. But I'm thankful that there, there hasn't been just time in, in financial investment, but some legitimate spiritual investment from my Davids. who prayed for me, some accountability when I got a little distracted, and a whole lot of sermons that helped me grow. But you know, it takes a lot more than a David to produce a Solomon. That's why I love this passage. I think David ran out of money or something because he, he then goes to the whole nation. Look at verse 20, verse, chapter 29, verse number one. It says, furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen. Do you, do you hear the pride in his voice? Man, there'd be some dads who'd get jealous if God had chosen their son to do the one thing they wanted to do. But here's David, he's putting his son up before the nation. He says, this is the man God has chosen for this work. And he says, whom alone God hath chosen is yet young and tender. Now, I don't know how Solomon felt when David said that, you know. Listen, he says, Solomon is young and tender and the work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. And so here's what David does in verses one through three is he exhorts the leadership of Israel. And he says, I'm not just gonna sacrifice to equip Solomon to build the temple, but all the nation needs to sacrifice. Why do they need to sacrifice? He says, because the work is great. The work is great. Why is the work great? Is it because the king is doing it? No, the work is great because it's a loan for God. It's a work that is for God's glory and God's honor and for God's praise. It would be a building that would declare God's glory among the nations. There would be heathen queens and heathen kings that would come to visit the nation of Israel just to see the riches that they had used to honor their God. He says, why should you invest? Because God's work is worth it. But he calls upon the nation to invest because Solomon his capacity was, was smaller than the work he was called to. He says, the work is great, but Solomon is young and tender. The work is big, but Solomon is a little bit young, and as Midwesterners like to say, wet behind the ears. He says, Solomon's calling is greater than his capacity. And when someone's calling is greater than their capacity, it takes a team to accomplish it, doesn't it, church? And so David calls upon the leaders of Israel. And he says, you need to get involved. Look at verse 
Number three, he says, moreover, I've set my affection to the house of my God. He says, I've invested, but look at verse number four. Uh, He talks about his investments. He says, I've given 3,000 talents of gold. Verse number five, he talks more about his investments. But then he says at the end of verse number five, who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? And I love verse six, because David preaches his sermon. He calls upon God's people to give. And here's what happened. God's people gave. And they gave willingly. In fact, verse nine says they gave joyfully. They rejoiced. They laid their life savings on the altar and they rejoiced in it. Why? Because they knew it was going to something that was worthwhile. And they gave. And here's what's interesting to me. If you look at verses six through nine, you'll find that actually the amount of gold that the nation of Israel gave, the leadership gave, was greater than even King David gave. That in every category, David's investment was outmatched by the people of Israel. And it took everybody working together to equip Solomon to accomplish God's call on his life. And here's the idea that I feel like stands out in the text. Why would David call on these people to give so sacrificially? Here's why. Because the greatest investment you can make, church, is to equip someone else to accomplish God's will for their life. The greatest investment you can make. And I'm thankful that I look out on a church that I've gotten to spend five and a half years with, a little bit over that. And I can honestly say this, that whether or not you understand it, whether or not you realize the ways you did it, you church, not the Davids, you have spent five and a half years equipping us to accomplish God's call for our life. And I could probably go into a lot of specific memories that would probably make me cry or whatever, but here's what I, as I look back, Pastor Tyler, I think what stood out to me is it's not these specific moments where God helped me and grew me in the ministry, but it's the overall impressions and the environment I got to spend the last five and a half years in. That it's not, you know, these one-off talks that stick out in my mind, but it's that I look at a church and here's the ways that that I see how you've equipped our family. I'm thankful that when we came here five and a half years ago and we were not well adjusted to Western Kansas, that you, listen, this is, so, this is so important. You never made us feel like we had to prove ourselves. I, you realize that's not always the case in a lot of churches? That, that sometimes you, you have to walk into a building and you feel like you've got to not be who you are for people to love you. And I've never once felt that at Fellowship Baptist Church in Liberal, Kansas. You invested in us by letting us lead you in different ministry capacities, even though I know for a fact some of you thought, I have no idea what this kid is doing. (laughs) Okay, Brother Mike. Yes, sir. You, You invested in me by encouraging me as I developed in my preaching. I mean, I can remember... Uh, it was a few years ago when I, I think one of the things that really confirmed that I wanted to pastor, and as much as I love serving here, is when I got to preach that series on how giants fall. 
And I, you all were so kind and gracious, and you were like looking forward to the next. It was a four-week Wednesday night series, and you're like, oh, I can't wait for the next one, and sharing quotes on Facebook. Listen, I know you probably did that because the, the Word of God genuinely helped you, but listen, here's what that did. That equipped me. That, that encouraged me to follow God's call for my life. And I know that's not why you did that, but that's, that's what it did. That's what it produced in my life. You invested in me, and this is, this is really important. You invested in me by letting me fail in a safe environment. I think like my time here at Fellowship in a lot of ways is like, you know, when you, you, you're teaching your kid how to ride a bike, you put on training wheels. Because it's a lot easier for someone to learn a new skill in a safe environment, isn't it? They're learning how to pedal. And, and Natalie's on a, a little bike now with training wheels. And I mean, you know, Natalie, she, she just gets scared easily by anything. And so that she needs that safe environment to grow. And you know, it would be a lot harder, honestly, it'd be a lot harder to grow in the ministry if I was constantly worried that someone would leave the church if I did something little wrong. And I'm just grateful church, and, and I hope you never lose this, that this is a gracious church that you understand that I'm not perfect, Pastor Tyler ain't perfect, Miss Jenny ain't perfect, and we make mistakes. But it's not worth leaving a church over little mistakes. I'm thankful for that. That's how you've equipped me. And, and I'm gonna go into a ministry and I'm gonna be the pastor and there, there, might, people, there might be people who would leave the church because I do something dumb, but I'm glad for five and a half years, I've learned how to not do dumb things in an environment where I wasn't gonna scare people out of church. <laughs> you've invested in me. I'm thankful for first steps. And I, I know he talked about how first steps has added to our church and been a blessing to our church. I'm so grateful for that. And I've told everybody who's asked me about first steps, it has nothing to do with my cons. It has everything to do with just being intentional about helping people find and follow Jesus and just being clear and proactive and addressing questions and not expecting someone to join the church over a one hour lunch. But you've invested in me because I, I, I've even had several of you Come up and talk to me this last week about your time and first steps. I just want to ask this. Just indulge me for a moment. How many of you took first steps with me at some point? Man, that's awesome. And, and you know, I truly mean this. There is nothing at Fellowship Baptist Church I enjoyed more than teaching that class. And when some of you ask some, like, I know Sam Decker, I'm not sure if he's here, some crazy questions that I had no idea how to answer. Hey, that, that equipped me. When you, when you all truly, genuinely just wanted to grow as a Christian, you know what I'm thankful for? That taught me that's how church life should be. Church life should be new Christians, new members with a hunger and a thirst for God's word. It should not be anything other than that. And listen, church, I think you, you underestimate sometimes how healthy of an environment this church is. It's not a perfect church, but I've been to enough churches to know that this is a very healthy place to be. And here's how that helps me. Because when I go out into another ministry, I now have in my mind what a healthy church looks like. What does it look like to be in a church that reaches people? I've never been in a church that reaches people like this place reaches people. I've never been in a church that's been more gracious than this church. And I'm thankful that I can go out and I've, I've had this safe environment of a healthy culture to learn in. I'm thankful that, that you've invested in my family by, 
loving us and caring about us like we were your own kids or your own grandkids. You know, my family lives 12, 14 hours away. You know how hard that's been at times? But you know what Shelby and I have looked back on so many times is that we miss our family deeply. We love our family. In fact, if you would have asked me three years ago I was planning church, it would probably be closer to my family. But what has made this five and a half years honestly not that burdensome is I look out at this auditorium and I see a lot of people who've been like an aunt and uncle in my life. I see Brother Kay who my kids call Papa. And, and I, she's not here tonight, but I, we have a Grammy Katie. You've equipped our family. And, and listen, we've got other staff families who are far away from their family. Church, don't underestimate how valuable that is. That is a part of how people can stay here and have longevity in the ministry is if you are willing to get outside of yourself and love people like they're your own kids. You say, well, my kids or my grandkids aren't here. I wish they were here. You've got a lot in this church to pick from. There's a whole lot of kids to love on and invest in and care about and, and, and give big hugs to. Man, there's so many of those opportunities. I'm so thankful, church, that you loved our kids like they were your own grandkids. I'm thankful that you held our family up during seasons of trials and weariness. I'm thankful that you financially gave to missions so that, that we have a, not just have a support check that's going to take us to this next ministry who couldn't support us full time, but we had a savings account that you've invested in through your missions giving for a long, long time that has been built up that can be used for the work of the ministry there. That's not normal, but it's, it, it's possible because you gave and you invested and you realized that that investment was worth making because you were equipping someone else to accomplish God's call on their life. But pay attention to this church. God's work is too great for you to stop. And I'm not just talking about ministry interns, although I look forward to the day that this church gets to have another ministry intern to love on like you've loved our family. But there's a lot of Solomons running around this church. And they aren't just knee high. Some of them are in their 20s and 30s. You know, the Bible talks about older women mentoring young women. It's not talking about 10-year-old women. It's talking about women, adults. I thought about this. Um, Shelby was singing that song. I assume it's because the thralls have been practicing that song for a couple of weeks. The Tyree over here is singing every single lyric. I think he knew the song better than I did. You know, that, that type of thing, Brother Daniel, that's investing in an eternal work. Man, there are a lot of people in this auditorium who, listen, church, you have the opportunity to prepare them for God's best for their life. And, and here's, I think, one of the ways that, that this church does that, and I, I've said this to Pastor Tyler, I really believe that maybe in the next 20 years, that this church is going to be an amazing place to train and send out pastors. Because, because here's what I, I told Pastor Tyler, that, that this church is a safe place and a healthy place for someone to know what a church should look like. To know what Bible preaching should be like. To know what loving, God-honoring church people should do and how they should act. And, and listen, church, there is... 
perhaps no greater way you can contribute to the work of the Lord than just providing this environment for people to be called to ministry, even among our own ranks, or for God to bring families to serve on staff here who we may not get to keep forever. I hesitate saying that. I think Pastor Tyler might be worried a little bit on the inside if I say that, but God may not allow you to keep all these families. And listen, that's not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing for you as a church to send out another Solomon and another one. And they may not plant a church, but they may pastor a church and they're helping establish another healthy flock of God somewhere else in this country or in this world. But there are also people who aren't gonna go into the ministry, but they are doing what God wants them to do in their life. And you have an obligation, church, to equip them and invest in them to follow God's call in their life. They're young couples that don't need your skepticism. They need your investment. There are people who are gonna serve in ministry with you that don't need you to hoard the ministry responsibilities, but need you to mentor them, to serve in the ministry with them. Because listen, you may not have a lot of time in your ministry left. We don't get a say on what our timeline is, do we? And I hope all of us would have a burden that the ministry is bigger than us. That, that the J-12 department is bigger than us. That our Sunday school class is bigger than us. That our connection group is bigger than us. And so here's what we do. We don't do everything on ourselves because we think we're the best and we think we deserve the credit, but that we would have a church culture of mentoring and investing in people and letting other people come alongside of us and sharing the responsibilities. Hey, listen, there are teenagers that need your investment. You know, I, th- I look back on my teenage years, which was so pivotal, I think, for me going into the ministry, that, that a lot of the people who encouraged me in my call were not people who, were, who was their job to invest in me. Yeah, I had a youth pastor who loved me. I had parents who loved me. But I had, you know, probably a handful of random church members who took an interest in me that was a little bit outside the norm who when they saw me not in church a lot, they would talk to me about it. Who would care about me. Listen, middle school tennis playing Mike Collins was not an impressive individual, okay? I was not. I'm still not an impressive individual, but I definitely wasn't in middle school. But there are people who loved me and cared about me, talked to me like I was an adult, encouraged me to love God and serve God. And it's because of those people in part that I'm here tonight. And I can't help but wonder if maybe there's some middle schoolers in here that you cross paths with regularly. You think, well, I'm not the youth pastor. I'm not a youth leader. No, 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 no. Are you a spiritual person who loves Jesus, who wants other people to love Jesus? Maybe you should get out of your comfort zone and invest in those people. And man, I, man I, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for missions giving. At church, I just want to encourage you to keep giving to missions. Because it's not just helping people like me serve the Lord. But if it's helping people in foreign countries, like you are literally investing in a lot, 60 different Solomons who are doing the work of the Lord. Today, the gospel is preached by uh, 60 plus families who you invested in with your missions dollars. You know why it's worth you sacrificing whatever you sacrifice to give to missions? You know why it's worth investing? Because the greatest investment you can make is to enable someone to accomplish God's will for their life.
talks a lot about David. But when I read this passage, I, I think a little bit about Solomon. What's Solomon feel like? And I jot down two words. Wrote the word gratitude. How could you not, if you're Solomon, look at $150 billion in resources and be just a little bit thankful? And when I, when I reflect on what you've done for us, church, I know this is obvious, but I'm incredibly gr- thankful. I'm incredibly thankful. And I think in some ways, I won't fully, fully understand how much you've given to us until we leave. How, how special you are to us until we leave. I know to a degree, but I think I'll know better when we leave. But I wonder if there's some people in your life that have invested in you. And, and, and because of maybe a lot of years or because they're not a perfect person and you maybe get focused on some micro flaws in their life, that you've not had a spirit of gratitude to the people that God has used to invest in your life. I think Solomon felt a lot of gratitude. You know what I think Solomon felt? I think he felt a lot of responsibility. You know, the gold that was given was not given for Solomon's house. It was given for God's temple. And I just wonder, I wonder if, if when Solomon was constructing this temple, it didn't cross his mind as they're laying another layer of gold paint. I wonder what Israelite family gave so that we could do that. As he set out, a, or as the priest set out another instrument in the, te- in the temple that David himself invested of his own personal fortune, I wonder if he didn't feel a deep sense of responsibility that his father and his people were willing to sacrificially give to him they thought, I better take good care of this building. And I better make sure our nation understands the significance of worshiping God in this place. And sometimes church, I think, Shelby and I have talked about this a lot. We, we look, we're grieved sometimes because there are people, there are kids in this church who grew up and are adults in this church now, who I think sometimes they don't understand the great re- responsibility that comes when God's people have invested their lives in you for two decades. I think, I think if you've grown up in this church or really any church in a church that loved you, you ought to feel a deep sense of responsibility to let that be a good investment. You can read the First Timothy and Second Timothy. That's exactly the idea Paul conveyed to Timothy actually when he references ordination. That he says that one of the reasons when he, when he really wants to drive a point home that he refers to the laying on of hands so as to signify to Timothy, hey, listen, it's not just me saying this, but there are men who've laid hands on you and prayed for you that have invested in your life. You better not mess it up. You better love God and serve God because there's a lot of people who sacrificially invested in you so that you can love God and serve God. Listen, we have a great responsibility, church, to be an investment that is worth making. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I want to ask you just a few questions.